Hey, good morning. I get to open a Bible with you finally. <clears throat> a couple things quickly. My wife said I need to tell you a couple things about tonight. When my wife tells me I need to tell you something, I just assume she's right at this point in my life. So, um, We're eating barbecue from Smoking Jack's, and uh, there will be a variety of sauces separately, I believe. Right, Joel? Yeah. And... Uh, and macaroni and cheese and baked beans and I don't know, some other things along on the side, but just so you know what's coming for meal tonight. And then that's kind of our annual tradition. Then the other thing is uh, you're welcome to wear a mask or not wear a mask. There's no uh, particular requirement. Um, it's just up to you. Okay. Um, and then uh, do any of the older kids here ever watch Dude Perfect? Yeah, yeah. Especially Meredith. <laughs> well, there was a recent Dude Perfect video, and, we, and, and at our church appreciation banquet, we do. Well, we have Oreos again. We're going to do the Oreo contest. Yeah, shake your head yes, even if you weren't planning on it. <laughs> it's like the Oreo contest is an annual tradition now, but there's also uh, going to be uh, a uh, competition from a recent Dude Perfect video. So um, I don't know how you could get you know, bigger than that. <clears throat> On a more serious note, I do just want to remind you to take seriously the consideration of signing up and attending the Helpful Marriage Conference. And uh, um, the cards are here. And we, we haven't had a lot of opportunities to do something like that. And uh, so when those kind of things roll around, sometimes rarely... I just want to encourage you to take advantage of opportunities like that, if at all possible. I know it's not always possible, but I guess I'm saying it's a very strong encouragement, if it is at all possible. It might come out in the sermon, too. Turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. You're thankful for your prayers and patience over the last month. I'm glad to be back in God's Word with you. I do think Joel and Esteban did a wonderful job, didn't they? bringing the Word of God to us. Yeah, please, by all means. And I hope you encourage them in their teaching with something specific that ministered to you. <clears throat> I had planned on preaching Colossians 3, chapter four, or verse 14 at the first of the year, but it's been delayed a little bit. And uh, we're going to do this in, in a two-part message. And, and part one will be today, and part two will be next week. And... Let's just read Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. There's some things that have come up that I just have to deal with with us, both in kind of just setting up the leading of where our church is going this year and also just kind of events that happen in the Christian world that many of you are aware of or will be aware of or influenced by that I just want to make sure I address. And so we're going to do this in two parts and Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's read verse 14 again. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for their commanding force. We thank you that you help us obey your commands. We thank you that you will, by your Holy Spirit, help us to put on love above all else. We pray for the fruit of love in the life of our church. Not any reduced or unholy form of love, either in the church or the world, but the holy love of God that is the fulfillment of the whole law and our love towards others. And so would you help us 
to put on love, to love you, to love our neighbor as ourself, to love your church, Jesus Christ's very bride, to give ourselves for the sake of your work and your kingdom and your people and lost people everywhere. And so help us to be careful in thinking about your truth, your way, and not adding our own thoughts and opinions to it, neither adding to it nor subtracting from it. Help me as I would lead your church. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, this year really is mentioned in our, we, if, <clears throat> in our congregational meeting, which was in December. This year really is about uh, growing together and what it means to be Christ's church in all kinds of different ways. But what, what does it mean to be Christ's church? What does it mean to be the bride of Christ? And um, so we're not going to go through a particular book of the Bible right now, though there are, we could do that and learn many things about the church, but there's a lot that we just need to uh, wrestle with in Scripture together this year and about what it means for us, in particular, not just Christ's church generally, but our church. And what does Scripture have for us that we need to learn and grow in and make clearer? And so, um, as a church, we have opportunities, and the way I would categorize them is this. We have opportunities to grow in our love. Everything that, when a church is growing in conformity to Scripture, the way to understand it is that it's growing in its love. Because Romans tells us that love, 13.8, love is, loving others is the fulfillment of the law. And so, um, when a church is becoming, is growing into conformity to Scripture, they're growing in love for God and love for others, then uh, what will be necessary is for the church to face things that require it to grow up to greater maturity. You know, as you know, I told you at the congregational meeting, I, don't, I can't rehearse, I don't have time to rehearse that. Um, I hope that you always make that a priority every year to be there because it's very important, but um, we're not a church that has all the answers. And we're not a church that has hit its peak of sanctification and now just is consistent to be leveled off and maintain the status quo. Our goal is actually to pursue Christ. And if Christ is the standard, we are far from Him in our sanctification. And so, Corporately, as a church, as, as we grow in love, we're going to see areas in which we need to keep growing in love. And so that's how I would say and summarize what this year really is about and really as it relates to being a church together. I would never want to be in a church that already had all the answers, had all things figured out, and nothing ever changed, and there was never any opportunity to have to really consider some things that might even be difficult conversations to have. I would just never want to be in a church like that, ever. They've had their answers since they were 25, and nothing ever changed. Yuck. This is how I feel about it. There you go. So here's a quick summary um, with much less explanation than I gave back in December, but just to kind of remind us and, and bring us along together. One of the things is church governance. How is, how is the church to be governed in a way that puts the right responsibility and right authority in the right place for the good of the whole church? How is the church supposed to be governed? How is its oversight supposed to happen so that there is real help when it runs into very difficult circumstances? What does Scripture teach? Second, we're working on rewriting our church's bylaws. You know, church's bylaws are just a description of how the church is supposed to function according to good order, and a congregation should expect its leaders and the congregation itself to function according to these to maintain good order in the life of the church. What should be in the bylaws and what shouldn't be and why? And there's a lot of overlap between this and church governance. Bylaws are very important in outlining the, how a church functions. But you've heard me tell you our bylaws are just bad. They're an overflow of Chicago Harvest, and uh, they had made principles of unbiblical thinking. You realize it's very important that you understand the difference between something. It's one thing to sin. It's another thing to make sin your principle that you live by. You understand? Those are two very different things. 
And it's a much more severe problem to principalize sin and make it the way you function. Okay? And so that's why I say our bylaws are bad, principles of unbiblical thinking and how a church should function. And a bad doctrine of the church leads to bad bylaws. So um, we're working on that, and we're going to be talking through these things. I mentioned the importance of joining with a group of churches. Why would we do that? Why would we do that? Why would we want to join with another church? Why don't we just want to be alone? And, um, well, we don't want to be alone. We think it's actually a very bad idea to be alone. We are alone currently in our organizational structure. Um, we're not alone relationally, but we are alone in our, in our organizational structure. So what should we consider about that? What's good about joining with other churches? Is there anything even biblical to consider about it? And what are, the, what are the dangers of joining with other churches? You know, And so there's lots of questions that arise that we need to consider and we need to talk about. And ultimately, what does Scripture say? What does Scripture say? Oh, one of the things I'm mindful of is I don't want to say more than Scripture says. And I don't want to make dogmatic statements as we walk through this that we don't need to actually be dogmatic about. But what can we learn and grow and understand? And how does it apply to us? And, you know, and here's the stickiest wicket of all um, for this year. Baptism. Baptism. Um, We need to explore what options we can consider on our love for one another when we have someone um, someone like Josh Creasy, who's a Presbyterian, which isn't really the issue as much as that he believes in infant baptism. He and his family and um, in Baptist churches like we are, the only two options that you're ever left with is this. And you all know this because you've all been in Baptist churches. These are the two options. If someone actually believes in infant baptism, one, o- one option is that they have to leave. In other words, they absolutely can't fellowship with us as Christians. So we close the front door to them. They actually are so far off, they can't even hardly be considered a Christian that can fellowship with us. The second, the section, second option is this. Um, they can be happy living with us, but we'll never actually seek to consider them in any way and, and, and see if there's any way to actually be of help. Those are the only two options. So one of the questions I have is, there, is, is there a possibility that in church history there is actually precedent for maybe some other options, something? I don't even have an answer for you about what we should do yet, but we have to have the conversation. We have to consider it because of our love for the creases. So we need to have the conversation. Our elders at this point don't have some formalized answer to give you. What we do want to tell you is what's true in Scripture and uh, what we have to wrestle with, what we have to talk about, and see if we can come to some place that we actually can live together well with. And I actually think it would be both a compromise of love and truth to not at least wrestle with the question. And I'll argue for why when we get there. Here's the deal. We can't grow as a church without recognizing um, the love that we have and deepening our love. And at the forefront of growing as a church together, the foundational thing and the most important thing about us is our love for one another. And so without love, all progress and maturity as a church will fail. We will make church about our opinions, our agendas, our ideas, our wish dreams of Christian community. Did you read that? And Do you remember that in Life Together? Did you read that? Did you read it? Did you read it? If you didn't read it, you need to read pages 27, 28, and 29 in Life Together, and you need to read it over and over and underlined every sentence on those pages. And it's all about the wish dreams we bring to Christian community. This is my ideal of what Christian community is. And without love, that's what you will bring to the Christian community. And your wish dream will be what the Christian community needs to be to you. That's what will be your wish dream. And without love, we will bring only our wish dreams and our traditions, and we will fail. But 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love never fails. 
And so our love is foundational to the nature of being a church. Now, let me give you our perspective, my perspective on our church. I'm not saying that neither, neither that we have arrived at God's standard of love, nor am I saying that we have no love at all. I, I do really think it's an accurate evaluation of our church to feel as the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And so that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. And I believe the summary of everything that your pastors and elders are endeavoring to teach you this year will, will require your growth in love somehow. Will require your growth in love somehow. Will require you to do this more and more. Will require brotherly affection, brotherly love more and more. So, I want to encourage you, you, maybe some of you, one of the best things you could do is print out 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 and 10, and put it on your refrigerator, and tape it to your steering wheel, and wherever you need to put it, or read it, or memorize it, and write it on a card, and carry it around with you until 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10 is actually something that you carry around in your heart, that is the summary of what our life together is in the church and what we're going for. Make it your aim. And I want to encourage you, think about it in your marriage. When your marriage is failing, it's a love problem. It's a love problem. Right? So think about it in your marriage. You need this more and more. And that's why I really think every married couple needs to seriously consider the Helpful Marriage Conference. So that you have, can take advantage of the opportunity to more and more your love for one another. And I want you to seriously consider it. You may not be lazy about this. You may not just dismiss it out of hand and not consider it and then just be apathetic and asleep like Esteban spanked you about a few weeks ago and just be lazy. And all of a sudden the time passed and I went, oh, just didn't really think about it. No, you can't do that. Husbands, you cannot do that. You must not do that. Thank you for that. If you're single, what does more and more mean for you in the love of Christ's bride? I'm really thankful for everyone who's single in our church, and they're constantly loving our church in all kinds of ways. What does more and more mean for you in the love of Christ's church this year? Or our children. Children. What does the love more and more mean for you in your home with your siblings? I want to encourage everyone here who's younger to lose an argument with your siblings on purpose because you love them. I don't want all of you growing up when you get married still trying to win every single argument. Do you know when having a good marriage starts? When you're a child and you're willing to lose an argument for the sake of love. Even when you think you're right. Or maybe obey your parents more and more. Because love towards your parents is your obedience to them. Because you love them. Because they have loved you. And God has made them the authority over you. To care for you. Obey more and more. I want to talk about love for a second. We're obviously on that in verse 14. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And I'm going to get more into the details of the text next week than I am today. But um, I think one of the things that we want to do is define what love is, you know, in 
in a neat little simplistic definition, you know? Um, big picture, an example of that is we say things, well, like, love isn't an emotion, it's an action, it's a verb. Okay, it's pretty unsatisfactory to the biblical picture of love to me. Um, and we want to try to kind of make it real neat and clean. You know, well, love is sacrificial service for the good of another. Okay. That's still unsatisfactory to me in the total picture of what love is in Scripture. And so my fear, what I want us to be okay with, is not to actually have to package it in some way that usually ends up being so neat and tidy and actually reduces what Scripture says about love. That's usually what happens. It's usually a reduction of what Scripture says about love. And so I'm not actually going to try to give you a simple little definition of love that you know, makes you happy because you feel like you have clarity. Unfortunately, that isn't always helpful. The love that binds our lives together in harmony isn't overly simplistic. It's just not. And I want to tell you, you've heard a lot of things both inside and outside of the church about love. And so a lot of what passes for love today isn't love, or or it's just part of the equation. And we make part of the equation the whole thing. But when we do that, we sacrifice so much of Scripture and so much of our responsibility and so much of what God expects and so much of what would cause us to reflect more of the God who is love. So let's, let's just talk about love for a second. And let's talk about some wrong ways that we think about it. Um, let's, let's think about this in, in the absolute sense. Love is emotion. And we hear this all the time, right? What, you know, if you ask somebody in the world, what is love? And they're like, well, it's the little butterfly when you get it in your tummy. <laughs> and that's it. It's when you know you love somebody right there. That's it. Or love is, love is romantic passion. You know, this is like every song ever written. Every godless song ever written, right? I want to know what love is. I'll stop there. I'm going to spend some time on this one. This is what the world demands love to be. Love is complete acceptance of me in every way about everything. That's what love is. Love is your complete acceptance of me in every way about everything. This is what the world demands of you. The world demands of you that if you would have love, you must accept everything about someone in every way. That's insanity. That is complete insanity. And so what does the church do? Well, what we do is we start to think that binding everything together in perfect harmony includes the world. And so we very subtly start to make compromises, very subtly, in a good church and in a biblical church, a compromise that starts to live by the world's message that in order for us to love them, we must accept everything about them. It starts very subtly, and most of you will not see it. And for many years, many subtleties. And I think still, I do not see them. I need help. When we succumb to cultural pressure that love is acceptance of me, we start to get wobbly in trying to think about how to love others. How to love lost people. We start to make compromises for cultural acceptance. Because if we accept them and everything about them, however heinous it is, if we're just accepting of it, then they'll accept us. 
and we're really godly about it, so we say, then they'll accept the gospel. Except the gospel doesn't accept everything about them. Jesus doesn't say, come to me and remain just the way you are. He doesn't say, work unto righteousness apart from me so you can come to me. But he doesn't come to me and say, remain the way you are. He says, repent. That is an entire change. Complete change of life towards God in submission to him. So we make these subtle compromises. I'm going to give you one that is just in development right now and is spreading and sweeping the nation and it's very personal and should be personal to you too. And I just want you to know as I talk about it, I have endless grief over this. Endless. My grief never ceases over this. I have no joy in saying this. I have no joy in talking about it with you. It's just necessary. That's all. I wasn't planning to talk about this. There was no agenda to talk about this, you know? Um, but it's just necessary. And, and, and so my former church, the, really the one that was primary in, primarily in my discipleship, where I went to seminary, and the group of counselors, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, to which I was certified by as a biblical counselor. Wee! Impressive. Until just recently, because I don't care anymore about being certified. Um, and Faith Church up in Lafayette have really made a subtle compromise that most of us wouldn't really catch. And it's swept the nation this week. It swept the nation this week on various podcasts. It was Al Mohler. Uh, if you listen to Al Mohler regularly, then you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But um, Al Mohler's compromised on this point. He can't see it. He should see it. He doesn't see it. But there's a, you know, a big fiasco up in West Lafayette, Indiana right now where, you know, Faith Church up there has a very significant presence and a significant presence in counseling and a significant presence in West Lafayette and amongst college students. And the fiasco is this, that the city council up there is uh, seeking to ban conversion therapy or also known as reparative therapy to minors. I won't get into the details because it doesn't matter for the, what I want to say today, but the conversion therapy or reparative therapy is any effort to change someone's sexual desires in life from homosexual desire to heterosexual desire in life, okay? You could say it like this. It's just an attempt. It's, it's an attempt to make a man live more like the man God made him, and it's attempt to an effort to make a woman live more like the woman God made them. That's what conversion therapy or reparative therapy is, okay? And, um, and so there's a, the, the city council seeking to ban any effort at that with minors, which will exclude faith's ability to do its ministry when, you know, someone comes to them and uh, they open scripture and seek to help them come to Christ and see their life transformed. It will include them. So they're fighting back about it. But here's what I want you to think about. Well, first I just want to say this. I'm, I hope they win. I hope they win. I, they're fighting a fight that really has implications for all of us. I'm actually very surprised we haven't dealt with this yet in Bloomington yet. I think the only reason we haven't dealt with it in Bloomington yet is because we don't have much sway here. <laughs> right? They're winning <laughs> in some sense. <laughs> and so it's probably just not that big of a concern to them. But... This is from the executive director of the Association of, Bibli- Cert- uh, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, okay? And it's hard to imagine how far this lie has gone now in just harming people. And that's the whole thing. It's about harming people. 
Here's the quote. This is the argument they're using in order to combat this. Quote, we as biblical counselors are opposed to conversion reparative therapy. Those things are not biblical approaches to the way we think about sexual immorality. Trying to include biblical counseling under that as a label is faulty and wrong. And so the lie is that we as Christians should all be against conversion therapy or reparative therapy. That's the lie. That we should be against that. If you're a Christian, you should not be saying or believing this. Right? It's, it is not true that Christians... should be against this. And say that very clearly. You shouldn't be against it. There. Christians would honor the idea of someone made in the image of God who may not be a Christian. Could be a Christian counselor, might not be a Christian counselor. Might just be any random psychologist. But you would honor you must honor the idea of someone made in the image of God whose conscience actually still has a moral ethic telling someone else to live according to the maleness or femaleness that God gave them. It's a reflection that the image of God is still functioning and of the common grace of God in His world restraining sin. You would honor that. You're not against that. And so you've been lied to about how to think about this stuff. You've been taught to think that only a person who is born again by the Holy Spirit, only a person who is born again can do anything at all whatsoever that's good. You've been taught to think that only a person who's born again can do anything that reflects the law of God in any way. But you've been lied to. It's not true. People keep laws all the time. One of the works of law in God's world, as he has made it, is to actually restrain evil. And it actually does. And that is good. And it has nothing to do with conversion. Well, it does have something to do with conversion because it actually helps lead people to Christ. I'm just saying it's still good even apart from conversion. Right? People are image bearers of God. It's, they're, they're not as... They're, we are wicked. I'm gonna, I, you are wicked. Trust me. I know. I'll tell you that again in a minute. Not as wicked as we could be because of the grace of God. The common grace of God. And we still bear the image of God, however marred it is. And so to be against something that's actually in line with what God's law demands is foolishness. It's foolishness. It may not be the ultimate good. It may not lead to full life transformation. Well, it won't. It won't lead to salvation from the wrath of God. It will not bring about eternal life, but it's not something that we say we're against. It shouldn't be wrong to a Christian for a psychologist to tell an 18-year-old boy who has homosexual temptations but doesn't want them to live more like a man. We shouldn't be against that. This is all reparative therapy is seeking to do. And the lie is, we're against it.
apparently Christians are supposed to be against that. Of course. Living in some ways more like God's law, bearing out the image of God in God's created world a bit more, never merits righteousness before God. Ever. Whatever faint reflection of goodness is still there, never is meritorious righteousness. Of course it never brings the fullness of the life Jesus came to give us. This is not a denial of the doctrine of sin. But to deny that keeping God's law in any form, any way, shape, or form at all, apart from gospel conversion as possible, is unbiblical. Let me ask you this, because I think this will make it clearer for you. There's a veil when we think about homosexuality because of the cultural pressure, and you don't have the ability to see clearly when I'm talking about homosexuality. But what if I said this? Should we be against a psychologist counseling someone to deny their murderous desires? Should we be, should we make it our aim, you know? To say to the whole world, we're against that. If the pressure, if the pressure was on, uh, was the world just wanting to murder people constantly, and the church was like, no, this is a, this is a bad idea, but, We're against anybody else besides us telling somebody they shouldn't do that. That's lawless thinking. Or let me push it another degree further. Should we say we're against, let's say conversion therapy and reparative therapy was uh, directed towards a pedophile who sexually desires children. Which is the next thing and the next thing down the road. You know, they're already trying to do what they did with homosexuality and, and they won and we, we forfeited all the ground. And this is another thing coming down the road. You know, to seek to normalize this. Should we, and as the cultural pressure for that, to normalize it in our decadence, becomes the thing, should the church make it its point to go, we're, we're against a psychologist telling someone no. We're against that. That's stupid. It's stupid. Stupid. The only way, the only way to function like this consistently is to function like no one can say no to anyone about anything. Because we're against it. It's not gospel preaching, it's fully convert the heart. We're against it. It's stupid. Well, why do good churches, biblical churches, make these kinds of stupid compromises when dealing with the world? Well, it's because of the pressure of love being cultural acceptance. Acceptance of me in every way and everything. You know, that's why. This is how you get there. You want the world's approval. And you seek to please men rather than please God and become a servant of men rather than a servant of God. And very subtly, you end up saying things that are stupid. 
Because if you just said forthrightly, we actually believe that homosexuals are destined for hell like the rest of mankind. And they need Jesus Christ. And everything we're doing is conversion therapy for the fame of Jesus Christ. And our church is full of repentant homosexuals who are experiencing the blessing of God. And now they're married and they have children. And they wouldn't ever want to go back to their past life of sin and temptation and misery and guilt and shame. And you say that and the world hates you. But if you say we're against that, then you very finely try to walk this line of thinking you're staying faithful to biblical truth while winning the world's approval because you're more accepting of them than they think you are. We don't do this badly like the psychologist does. We're better. Think better of us. Let me explain to you the nuance of Gospel preaching to someone who's 17 and gay and how much better it is. And therefore, we're going to win the world's favor. It's stupid. And I don't want any of you to think like that. And unfortunately, it took years for me to get the cobwebs out of my head about this. Our love can't be complete acceptance according to the world's demands. And the movement towards that is subtle. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's very subtle. This is why we shouldn't lie. Just be forthright to the world. Just be straight forward to the world. The world has no intention of accommodating us if we just go as far as we absolutely can to accommodate them because at some point, once you can't accommodate them, they're going to eat you anyways. The problem is you're going to be compromised in the process. And the compromise is going to bear bad fruit. You give it enough time, that compromise is going to keep going and it's a ball, it's an avalanche cruising down a mountain that gets started and accelerates and picks up momentum and the bottom of the mountain is the complete rejection of Christ for generations to come following it. So why do I care about this? Because sin hurts people. Sin hurts people. Sin damns people. Love stands against What destroys people stands against what destroys their souls. It stands clearly against it. It stands decisively against it. It preaches against it. Love tells people how to live their lives in submission to King Jesus. You know? How many times have you heard it's just not really our job to tell anybody how to live their life? That is entirely what we're here for! Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, commanding them to repent and believe the good news Every man, everywhere. All we do is tell people how to live their lives. That's all we do. For crying out loud, love should never stand against what helps people. So that's what very subtle compromise looks like. Here's another wrong idea about love. love. Love is just action. It's just a verb. Many of you have heard, you know, this. Love isn't an emotion. It's an action. You know, love is a verb. You know, I just love how preachers come up with ways to say things that sound good and go down easy and just aren't true. Entirely true. They're not entirely true. 
right? That is trying to correct the air, right? That love is merely emotion. It's trying to correct the air that love is merely emotion and then just cr creates another air swinging too far. It's also trying to correct the air that if I don't feel something and I do it, there can be no love in it, you know? And so, of course, duty has love in it. Of course, duty has love in it. And, and we should honor good duty. You know, some of you always feeling like your spouse is just checking off a box, but because they're doing their duty, well, sometime you need to be thankful that they're doing their duty. Because frankly, you're not easy to feel loved, love for sometimes. <laughs> you know? Right? Husbands, you're not easy to feel love for sometimes. Wives, you're not easy to feel love towards sometimes. So maybe honor a little duty sometime instead of just criticize it. But, but, Scripture says love one another with brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. The thought that love isn't an emotion, you know, it's just a verb, is stupid. It's my favorite word this morning. It's action and affection. You know? It's care and concern and someone's of great value in your life and in your heart and you carry them and esteem them in your heart and you, and you serve them sacrificially. Right? It's all of these things. If it's just an action, then bring your wife flowers and just say, I just felt like it was time again. And she whops you upside the head with that vase. Imagine God saying, well, I just thought you needed a cross. So I did my duty. He did his duty. But just the fatherly affection that God has for you in Christ. He has the same fatherly affection for you that he has for Jesus, his own son, because you are bound up with him. Entirely bound up with him. Love isn't just a verb. I think this is one of the most important ones. And I think it fits the context of Colossians that we'll get into more next week. But love isn't never being sinned against. But if your standard of love is that if I'm sinned against, I'm just not loved, like in any way. If that's your standard, your wish dream of Christian community needs to just be shattered and destroyed. Is that what the text says? Go back there to verse 14. Look back at your Bible. Does it say, And above all these... Ensure that you are never sinned against, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And this is endlessly what you think. And this is endlessly how Christians today think because they have no sense of their own sinfulness anymore because pulpits don't tell them they're wicked. If they don't tell them they're wicked in private and in their homes and on couches and across from tables and they don't tell them how wicked they are and show them. And so when we think, once there's actually, once we actually, uh, and so if it's our wish dream, that that's what love is. Love is a place where um, in, 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 in this world, that the Christian community in the church is 
I'm only loved if I'm never sinned against. You just won't last long here. This is like we are a wicked bunch. And so that wish dream of Christian community has to die because it's not in never being sinned against that binds everything together in perfect harmony. What binds everything together in perfect harmony is love. And look in the context. Put on compassion. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And guess what? It says put it on because you don't have it. And you never have enough of it. And so you're always growing in these things, which means in the church you will be unkind and you will not have compassion and you will be impatient. In other words, you'll sin against each other all the time. So we can either just be honest about it or just be liars. You know? Compassion on us, but keep going. Verse 13, bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. Right? That implies that you're going to get sinned against. One has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Forgiveness means you're going to be sinned against. And guess what? You're going to sin against somebody else in the Christian community. And so if that's all that your standard of love is, is no one should ever sin against anybody in the life of the church, that is a wish dream of Christian community that just needs to die right now today and go away forever. The sooner you're disillusioned about that, I mean, I almost want to sin against you just to help you. I don't want to live under your oppression, so let's just get it over now. First Peter, love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Here's what I want you to understand for today's purposes. We don't need a neat little definition of love that just neatly checks all the boxes that we want to call love. And we come up with sentences to say what love is, and what we have to realize is that when Romans 13.8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, what you have to realize is, is love is defined as simply as the fullness of this book. When you love, love others, you have fulfilled the law towards your neighbor. That's the fullness. What we're talking about is the fullness of what Scripture teaches towards your neighbors. It's all of it. It's obedience when it's obedience. It's sacrificial service when it's sacrificial service. It's brotherly affection always. But it's all of the actual commands that Scripture gives us towards one another that are summed up by what love is. Okay? It all defines love for us. And the last thing I want to tell you, that there's one critical assumption behind this text. What time is it? Uh, well, good. That clock's wrong back there. I've been preaching on pause for a long time. <laughs> one critical assumption behind this text, and we'll get into more detail of its specifics next week, but there's one major issue that I really want to deal with, and it's, it's the nature of love and truth. And I want to deal with that next year, next week with you. Because that's one of the main issues where we would start to say that, you know, we're compromising truth, and if we're not wise about this, that will be disharmonious. Okay, so we'll deal with that next week. 
But one final critical assumption behind this text is God knows all of your wickedness and evil deeds. He knows all of it. He knows the wickedness that you have committed recently or in distant past that you have still never confessed to anyone and brought into the light. He knows all of it. You live before him always. But he says, if you have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ that you are his chosen ones, holy and beloved. In other words, God says to you, I know you are very wicked. And I love you. And this is the foundation of our love. Knowledge of our own wickedness. And faith that God says to us, I love you. As your pastor, what you want me to think is that you're doing well and you're a respectable Christian and you're not going to commit any real sins and you never really have You were bad enough to need Jesus, but you don't really sin. And you have your ducks in a row, and you have your homes in order. But let me just tell you, you are very unconvincing. I am not persuaded. You are far worse than you look, and I know it. You know? Because I don't believe you. I believe what Scripture says about you. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. So should I believe that, or should I believe your justifications about yourself and your righteousness? Should I believe your respectable appearance? You say, but I'm a good dad, I'm a good husband, I'm a good wife. And I say, stop being a liar. There's only one who's good. You have not kept all the commandments. You are deluded. There's only one who's good and does good. And he is our good father. There is one who is good and does good. The church today doesn't need any more liars who are faithless about what Scripture says about themselves. And so the doctrine of sin requires you actually have faith in it about yourself. It actually requires faith. And it doesn't require just kind of a general agreement that you're imperfect. It requires that you are wicked if you have faith in it. And you do wicked things. And wicked things, Christians do wicked things. So I have faith in what Scripture says far more. And I just want you to know, I know that you are wicked and you have done wicked things. And I know that evil deeds plague your conscience. And I know some are horrendous and you've never told them to anybody. And I just want you to know, and I love you. So love that binds everything together in perfect harmony's foundation really is this. I know that you are very wicked. And I love you. So let's not live a sham. You know what I mean? Let's not live a sham. Let's just all look to Jesus. everything is about him binding us together before our love binds us together stand with me for prayer would you oh God help us to love more and more love more and more in truth. To love one another in the depths of our depravity and right in the middle of it. 
are loved by your spirit. And may we give glory to Jesus, who is the one who has poured out his love on that cross in our place to pay the fullness of the penalty for our sins, that we might be forgiven. And may we bless him always for the love that he has shown us. The love that binds our hearts together in Christian love. We give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.